Well, hey, good morning. Uh, we're starting a new series, which means I'm going to do some uh, skateboard tricks for you. Some of y'all are scared to death, right? You think that I'm actually, uh, actually going uh, to do that. Uh, I'm not doing a kickflip up here. I'm not going to do anything like that. Uh, but I'm 47 now, and I've had back surgery, so that's the reason. Uh, my balance is gone. Uh, I can't really risk it. But when I was... Uh, uh, younger, if you would have known uh, 12-year-old Dan Reeves, okay, there were some things you would have known about me. One of the things that you might not know, if you're getting to know me, is uh, I, I loved professional wrestling when I was 12, okay? Not actually doing it. I liked watching it. Um, and Saturday morning for me was waking up. We watched cartoons, my brother and I, uh, and it would all build to 11 o'clock on Channel 5 when I would watch uh, Memphis Wrestling. And so do I have any other people out here that, can, that know what I'm talking about? Okay, a handful. We can talk about it after service or something like that. Uh, I know all kinds of wrestling trivia that you wouldn't think that anyone should know. I actually do know it. Uh, another thing you would have known about me when I was 12 is I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, I was really uh, hoping to go into the Air Force uh, and wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, wanted to fly uh, jets and those kind of things until my hopes were dashed, my dreams were dashed because of these things right here. Uh, they said I didn't have the eyes for it. Uh, and so I just kind of hung that one up, uh, moved on. I loved baseball when I was 12. Uh, I really, that was my, that was my favorite sport uh, to play, still love it to this day. Uh, I love watching baseball. Uh, another thing that I, I loved uh, was BMX and skateboarding uh, when I was 12 years old. Uh, I lived in the country though, okay? So I, I lived, if everybody's familiar with Jonesboro, where Ron's Catfish is out toward Jonesboro Auto Auction, that's where I grew up, out that direction. Uh, but on Saturdays, my parents, after uh, wrestling and stuff like that, my parents would go to work and I would ride my bike from there into Jonesboro. Okay, now just think about this. I don't know what my parents were thinking, letting me do this. Uh, I would ride down the highway, ride around Jonesboro all day. Uh, when Indian Mall was uh, over on Caraway Road, I would ride around there, hang out there. I would jump the speed bumps, do all kinds of stuff, try to learn tricks and things like that. Uh, and, and I would ride around town, check in with my parents, and then I would throw it either in the back of my dad's truck on the, in the afternoon, we'd go home, or I would ride home. Uh, I do not have that kind of energy anymore. But the other thing I like to do was uh, I like skateboarding. And I wasn't particularly good at it, but I wanted to be good at it, you know. So what that means is if you're 12, that just means you kind of have to look the part. Uh, and so I just figured out what everybody was supposed to wear. And I, I tried to learn some tricks. I, I learned a few tricks. I could do a, a few things. Uh, but one particular day, uh, a buddy of mine that was into skateboarding too, we used to have to do this around Jonesboro again because we lived in the country. Uh, we went to Arkansas State University. And um, we would ride around there because there was a bunch of sidewalks. Uh, obviously, you could do all kinds of things. Uh, but we had this bright idea this one day. We were skating around uh, Arkansas State as 12-year-olds. And um, we went over to, uh, if you're familiar with the campus, some of y'all that are students, you know what I'm talking about, but where Kays Hall and University Hall is, uh, we went on that. Some of you that have helped us with ASU move-in, you know where we're talking about. That's primarily where we hang out in that big, tall building right off of Johnson. Uh, we got at the top of that hill, and my buddy... He decided, he had a bright idea. He said, hey, what if we get on that skateboard together and we go down this hill together? And as a 12-year-old, I thought, well, that's a pretty good idea. You know, that sounds good. And so we did. We got on the sidewalk. We hopped on the skateboard. And, uh, you know, I don't know exactly when the idea turned the different direction. I don't know when it, it started to dawn us, but I, I do know it was before the accident, okay? Uh, at some point, uh, we were going, and uh, you reach that point where you're thinking, okay, uh, maybe we can make it. Oh, no, we're not going to make it. 
you know, you kind of have that whole conversation and at the same time you're trying to hold on and maybe we can get to the bottom of this thing. We're on the sidewalk in front of University Hall. We're about in the middle between the two dorms and that's when it happened. Uh, there's this thing called inertia. Does anybody know what that is? And this skateboard was going down and it hit a crack and it stopped, but we didn't. This thing did that, catapulted us uh, into the future. Uh, and this is the 80s. Okay, let me just say this. This is the 80s, uh, young, uh, uh, young couples with kids. This is before people were required to wear seatbelts. Uh, this has been the time when I used to like ride around the back of a truck in a lawn chair, you know, stuff like this. Uh, this was not skateboarding with protective gear. There were no helmets. There were no elbow pads. There were no knee pads, nothing like that. Uh, the 80s were a bloody decade, okay, all the way around. Uh, we were catapulted off that thing, flying through the air. We're rolling around. I stand up, and I am just bloody from, like, my shoulders all the way down. Fortunately, I didn't hit my head too bad or anything like that. I've got blood on every appendage and everything like that. And, and I can remember there just hurting and thinking, what in the world did we do, you know? Uh, I still have to ride home today, right, you know, at this point. It, and I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about that, that whole uh, uh, thing, and, and it's kind of a fond memory. It's just funny now because uh, we made it. It's kind of like when you watch uh, on YouTube. I know you watch them, all those fail videos when people fall and stuff like that, and you laugh, and you don't want people to know that you think it's funny, but you really think it's funny. And this is funny because I look back and I'm okay. You know, I'm standing here, no major damage done, anything like that. But oftentimes life's like that, you know, where you start off and you think, oh man, this is gonna be awesome. And sometimes, honestly, it's like that with faith. You, you start off and you, you begin this relationship with God and you've got all these expectations. I mean, this is gonna be awesome. I'm gonna get on this board. We're gonna ride down this thing. It's gonna be a great time. But life and faith, they kind of collide, if you will. The inertia of life means that there's going to be some cracks in the sidewalk, that somewhere along the line, you're going to hit something and it's going to hurt. And when it hurts, there's nothing funny about it because it's not a 12-year-old on a skateboard accident that just kind of got his knees scraped up a little bit. I mean, it's a loss of a marriage. It's a loss of a child. It's a loss of a job. It's questions about the future. It's wondering if God actually is there, if he's actually listening, and if he is listening, does he even care about what's going on? I mean, this is what real life is like. I mean, you could say it this way, that life is lived here on the ground. Sometimes when life is lived here on the ground, it seems like God is so distant, and it feels like we cannot connect the two. We struggle to figure out what difference does faith make in this world, in this life here on the ground. I mean, in the series called Proving Ground, what we're going to be looking at is simply this, is what does it look like for us to recapture faith? What does it look like for us to actually embrace what God has for us and to move away from this idea that faith is distant, that God is distant? Our prayer is simply this, that over the next two months that we're going to look at these stories, how God has moved in the past of individuals, and we're going to be refreshed and renewed and understanding that God is still present. God is still faithful. God is still moving and operative, not just around us, but in us, that he has an assignment and he has a calling for our life. And if you're struggling, if you're scraped up, if you're beat up, my hope is simply this, is that your faith would be renewed. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at some individuals, some famous stories, okay, uh, all over the Bible, scattered all around the Bible that are going to share with us and show us the faithfulness of God. 
And so if you've been struggling with faith, if you've been struggling with life, let's look together how we can grow together in faith. Today we're going to look at Judges uh, chapter 6. Judges, if you have trouble finding it, don't worry. Uh, you can start at the left hand of your Bible and go about seven books in. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Okay, seventh book of the Bible uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to pick up in chapter 6. But what I'd like to do is in order to get us there, I'm going to do three quick things. I'm going to give you the lay of the land. I'm going to give you the context because it's going to set up a specific encounter a specific person and a specific moment where God steps into someone's life and changes the course uh, of their life on this proving ground uh, called life, okay? First thing I want to do, excuse me, is I want to let you kind of see it where this falls uh, chronologically in the story of God, okay? So if you're going to open up your Bible, I mentioned Genesis and beyond uh, from there, uh, but if you begin in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, you're going to get the story of this guy named Abram. His name becomes Abraham, uh, and that, that, that story is really important because uh, it shares the promise of God. God steps into the story of mankind. Uh, when he steps in, he gives this promise to Abram. He says, hey, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to make a people for my name. You're going to have uh, descendants as much as the stars in the sky, sands of, uh, grains of sands on the beach. Uh, it's going to, you're going to be my people, called by my name to be a blessing to the world. Well, things don't go particularly well. Uh, the story go, takes a downward spiral uh, because uh, as God is inter, engaging with his people through his promise, they continually to pull away. They get themselves into captivity, which takes us to the story of Exodus. We're actually going to preach through Exodus this summer. Uh, but when you get to Exodus, this is when God, once again, is trying to be faithful to his promise. He pulls the people out of captivity of Egypt. Uh, he sets them on their way. He goes and meets with them, Moses, uh, at Mount Sinai through the burning bush. He says, you're my people. I, I, I want you to I know I'm faithful to you. Here's the way that you're supposed to live. Here's how you're supposed to act. All those type of things as my people, as a reflection of my character and my countenance. Well, once again, the downward spiral begins to happen. They begin to pull away. That pulls them into a place called the wilderness. And in the wilderness, uh, they're grumbling against God. They keep turning against God. And for 40 years, God is continually to be faithful to lead them by day and by night, to be faithful to his promise, to create a people called by his name. Well, finally, Joshua arrives on the scene uh, following Moses, and he ushers them into this place called the Promised Land. This is the, the, the centerpiece of God's uh, promise to Abraham. It is now fulfilled. They enter into the place of promise. They've, they're no more wandering around uh, in the wilderness. Now's the time, right, to kind of take hold of your identity, who you are, and all those type of things. But if you follow the story, what ends up happening is you end up getting to a period of the judges is where we find ourselves. And this is a notable period because this is the tragic scene of the story. Uh, if you read it, uh, I mean, some of you that are new to scripture and reading it, you should read it. It's really interesting, uh, but it's really tragic. And the reason it, it serves this purpose as being kind of the tragic section of the Bible is because it's trying to show what it looks like when people turn in on themselves. It, it's the dehum dehumiliation of people people, when we actually become and kind of de-evolve away from what, the, what God has called us to be as people of his promise, and we turn in on ourselves. And there's this famous verse at the, near the end of the book of Judges. It says that everyone did right in their own eyes. That means everyone became their own gods. They didn't follow God's way. They started to follow their own way. They turned away from the faithfulness and the promise of God. 
Well, ultimately, that ends in the kingdom period, and you've got Saul, you've got David, and Solomon, and the others. And then that, once again, leads a downward spiral, and they end up in the exile. But we find ourselves in a period of the judges. They are now in the promised land, and they do not yet have a king. And the second thing I want to show you is a little bit of what it looked like, because that's the chronology of it, but the geography of it uh, looks like this. And uh, I don't expect you, we're not having a quiz on this. I just thought it would be helpful to kind of familiarize yourself. There's the Jordan River right through the middle of that. And at this time, there's no king, and so there's no throne. Uh, that means there's no central government. It's this loose federation of all the 12 tribes of Israel, and they're kind of making it on their own. And what's interesting about that is that each one of the tribes has their own problem. They all are turning away from God. Uh, and that means that it's not unique to a particular group. It's not unique to a particular king. They are continually denying the faithfulness of God, the promises of God. They're turning in on themselves. Well, that culminates in uh, a lot of wars and the consequences of this vicious cycle of selfishness. And so I mentioned two things that I want to do. One was to show you the chronology. One is to show you the geography so you can kind of see it. But then what I want to do is I just want to read you the beginning of Judges 6. And it's going to set the stage and catapult us in to the, the discussion of the primary story that we're going to focus on today, which is a guy named Gideon. But I want you to see the story real quick. But I'm going to read the first 10 verses. You can follow along with me. I will throw it up on the screen. But this sets the scene for why this story has everything to do with this concept of proving ground. Watch what happens, 10 verses, listen alone. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, the caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They inv invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. And the prophet said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God, not to worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So I think you can kind of get the picture, right? In the big grand narrative of, of Scripture, God's trying to create a people. They're continually disobeying. They're doing right in their own eyes. He's doing everything. He's continually faithful in their lives, and they are complete, utter failures at being faithful to God. They keep turning away from God. And this sets the scene for the author of Judges to write this tragic story and insert in an encounter. And what we're going to look and we're going to kind of rush through today is we're going to look at this encounter with this man named Gideon. And what you have in verse 11 is a transition from this big master narrative that we've just outlined. And it's kind of like if you've ever been on Google Earth and how you can kind of see the globe and you can enter in 
an address. And if you've ever watched that, if you've ever done that, uh, you got to have the earth spinning and it zeroes in on that address uh, and it will pinpoint and it will actually zoom in and you will kind of see all these things pass and you'll get to that specific location that you typed in. Well, that's what happens between verse 10 and verse 11. We're looking at this big, broad, expansive story of what God's doing. And then what the author wants to do is he wants us to step into a specific moment, a specific address, and he wants to tell the story of a specific individual. He wants to describe to us the call of Gideon in this backdrop of what God is up to do up to with his faithfulness and our failure. So we're zeroing in. And when we zero in in verse 11, this is what we find. The angel of the Lord came and he sat under a terabith at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So what do we find? We, we, we zero in and we find this guy named Gideon. This is the first time he appears in scripture. And we find him in a very specific location. He's there and uh, he, he, he's meeting and he's in a wine press, okay? Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a wine press. I certainly have, haven't, but by the uh, beauty of Google, we can show you one. This is what it looks like. If you zero in really closely, he was in a place like this. It's a deep recessed place that was constructed for the purpose of, uh, of pressing out wine. They would throw the grapes in there. You and your buddies would get in there. You'd walk along uh, the outside of that thing. Don't step in the middle of it because it drains toward the middle. That's where you collect the wine. This is where all the juice from the grapes uh, goes. And then you take that out. You allow it to ferment. And then you have your wine. Now, this is really interesting on a lot of levels because uh, there should be something that jumps off the page. One, he is beating out wheat, or you might call it threshing wheat. I don't know if we have any wheat threshers in here. Uh, it's not something that a lot of people do these days, but in that day, they would take a, a fork, they would take it into the wheat, they would throw it up in the air, and it would be really helpful if you were on a precipice or a high spot uh, where the wind could catch it, and it would blow the holes off the wheat, and it would allow the kernel of the wheat to fall. You would and glean the wheat kernels and you would crush it and grind it into bread. And so what you find here is you find uh, something that's kind of paradoxical, something that uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's a weird juxtaposition because you've got an activity where somebody's supposed to be up uh, outside where they can thresh this wheat, throw it up, and it can separate. But what you have is you have him down deep in a recessed place in a wine press. Why is he there? It's because he's hiding. He's scared to death. Uh, why is that? Because everything that we just said, everything that happened in the first 10 verses, every time that they were uh, in a vulnerable place, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the other ites all around them would come in and they would just ravage what they had. They would plunder what they have. And so their life was, it was a national calamity. It's living, breathing, waking up in the morning, scared to death for your life, trying to hide out so that you can grind a little bit of food for yourself and your family. And in the middle of that wine press, as you zoom in with Google Earth, who do you find at the center of the wine press? A guy named Gideon. And we're going to learn a lot from Gideon today. Because Gideon becomes a representation from us. It's kind of like what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says we, we have these stories to show us as examples of who God is and how God acts. And it's actually revealing about ourselves. And so we can step into Gideon's life and he's kind of a mixed bag. 
I mean, he's far from perfect. A lot of times we look at these Old Testament stories with guys like Gideon, and we're like, man, man, just to be a Gideon, man, to be a hero, to be a great person of faith. Well, what we're going to find out is that he was not really that great of a person of faith, but God chose to be faithful in the midst of his failure. And it all begins, as callings do, with an encounter. Now, here's the thing you have to know about for God to move in our life, is that our callings, just like Gideon's, begin with an encounter with God. Now, this encounter with God that you see is the transition point in the story, is it not? Uh, otherwise, Gideon is just doing his thing, but the reason he's written in the story is because God chooses to enter into the story. So God begins with an encounter with, it begins with this encounter with God, and the encounter is always initiated by God. Uh, a lot of times we'll say this, like, I mean, I'm searching for God, like, I'm trying to initiate this. But here's the thing, the way that the biblical pattern is, is that God is always stepping into our story. The, the picture of Jesus himself is the story of God stepping into the story to initiate an encounter. Uh, the God that we cannot see made himself, he revealed himself, made himself known. He revealed himself to us so that we could know him. And the other thing is that you find this, and you're going to find this common trait as we go through the next couple months, is that like so many of the encounters, Gideon's encounter actually happens when he's alone. Happens when he's alone. And, and, and I feel a need to stop right there and just kind of make an observation, okay? Because uh, what this means is that uh, for Gideon and for us, oftentimes we're looking for encounters to happen in obvious places, uh, and what I mean by that is we think that encounters are supposed to happen in rooms like this, and they certainly do. Uh, they certainly do. I mean, last week is a, a, a testament to that, that there were people that made decisions. God made an encounter with them. But what I've also learned over my lifetime and my life of faith is some of the most powerful times, the most powerful places God's, God meets with me is not in a service. It's not leaving, listening to a sermon. It's in my time alone with him. And I think this is of particular importance for us, and I think we just all need to be really honest about it, that the season that we live in, this cultural moment that we live in, this is particularly difficult. And it's a challenge for us because what we have to recapture is we have to recapture some encounters with God. And we have to recapture the opportunities to be alone with God so that God can speak to us clearly. But here's what I see, just being point blank honest with you. What I've seen, especially in the last five years of the church, and I've been, uh, I've been a pastor for 30 years in some capacity, uh, over the last five years, I've seen a demonstrative change in people's uh, time alone with God, uh, uh, of actually taking in Scripture, actually spending collective and uh, set-aside time in God's Word and in prayer and meditation and fasting and solitude with God and searching God. And while that has diminished, what I've also seen is I've also seen this rise in the ingestion and intake of media uh, and information. And it can take a lot of different forms. Uh, I mean, I, I saw a, a stat this week. It was from 2018, so it's a little dated, but I think it's more pronounced now. But the, the stat in 2018 is that the average American spends uh, 11 hours a day taking in media in some form, 11 hours a day. That means that I don't, I don't care if it's uh, Fox or CNN. I don't know if you like Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow. I don't care if you like Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or if you're a TikTok person or whatever it is. The truth is, whatever your pre preferred drug of choice is when it comes to media, 
is that we are by and large taking in an exponentially more amount of media than we are of God's word in our life. And what I also see is in the middle of that, I'm trying to see my way through as a pastor, as a friend, as a father, as a husband, and as just an individual, and trying to say, like, how do I hear from God in all the noise? I mean, you can do the math, right? Like, if if it's 11 hours a day, multiply that by seven, that's 11 hours a day, 77 hours a week. And if all you get, and I don't know what your time alone, alone with the Lord is like, But what I do know is that if you're taking that much in and the only thing you get, uh, I mean, I preach a long time. I preach more than a lot of other people do. So you you know that. Like, I know that too, okay? Uh, But if it's an hour versus 77 hours, if that's all it is, and you're saying, God, I want you to move in my life. I want to hear from you. I want you to be present. I want to be near from you. But here's what we have to realize is we are being discipled every second of the day. Whatever we're taking in is discipling us. And I'm not telling you to stick your head in the sand and act like nothing's going on. I'm not trying to say, hey, you can't read anything else or do anything else. But let's just be honest about it. We got a lot of people that are wanting God in our life. We're needing God in our life. We need God in our world. And we're trusting in all these different people, all these different outlets to speak to us. And we're having a lot of encounters but we're having very few encounters, true encounters with God. And I don't think that it's because God doesn't want an encounter with us. I think if anything, Gideon's story, if it doesn't teach us anything else, is that God wants to enter into places like wine presses, dorm rooms, car rides, bedrooms, living rooms, board rooms. He wants to step into the story because he came to have a relationship with us. But we've got to be honest. What kind of environment are we creating so that we can actually have an encounter with God? You see, everything happens through an encounter. And through Gideon's story, you see what it meant in his life. Look what happens in verse 12. Verse 12 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Some of you, your translation may say, oh, mighty warrior. Uh, the word might be hero. Uh, that word for valor is the word kayil uh, in Hebrew. The word kayil uh, has a lot of different translations. The two most prevalent in the Old Testament are the word army and the word valor. Uh, by and large, those are the ones that kind of carry the weight. You can see what that's like. Um, the, the emphasis on courage, uh, on uh, on confidence, on bravery, uh, to stepping into the gap, to do the hard things, uh, which is really uh, uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? Because where do we see this guy? I mean, he's hiding. This guy doesn't look like any kind of mighty man of valor. I mean, he's, he's stuck in a wine press trying to thresh out wheat in a wine press. Why? Because he's tr- hoping that they don't just steal his food. Uh, they're hoping the bullies don't come in and take his lunch money. I mean, this does not look like someone of valor. You see other instances with this word, uh, two of the most uh, uh, kind of pressing to me. One is happens in 2 Samuel 23, uh, and there's a reference to army or the elite army of David. You, know, you might remember the fighting, David's fighting men. Uh, this is kind of his elite army. They're kind of like the Delta Force of the Navy SEALs of the uh, Israelite army. They're the ones immediately around um, David, and you can read about their exploits. I mean, these, uh, these were people of valor, right? 
Another notable place you may see this word is in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, because it's not just a, in reference to men. It's also reference to women many times. Uh, in Ruth 3.11, when Boaz says she's a woman of worth, that word worth is actually the same exact word. It's kayil. It means to have courage. Another translation of that could be you are a forceful woman or you are a valiant woman. You are a strong woman. You're a courageous woman. You see, this word means that God steps in to all of our stories. And what that means for us is that when God encounters us, it is going to confront us. It's going to confront, it's going to come into contrast between what God says about us and where we find ourselves. And all of us at some time or another find ourselves in a wine press. You may be in, in your version of a wine press right now. You're scared, you're confused, you don't know what the future holds, you don't know where God is, and God is stepping in, initiating into your story today. And what's going to happen, I can promise you, the first thing that's going to pop up is questions. Because there's a thing I know about encounters. Encounters provoke questions. They provoke questions. The first question that you see pop up is what I'm going to call a why question. And when you see a why question, uh, it, it just basically is trying to take the dissonance, the tension between what you're hearing from God and what you're seeing in real life and being honest about it. This is the way it plays out for Gideon. He says, uh, Gideon says to the angel of the Lord, he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, here's the thing. If encounters provoke questions, then we need to be a people that are honest about our questions, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is honest. This is the dissonance, right, of faith. This is like saying, God, I, I see what you're saying here. I, I hear what you're speaking to me. It does not seem to match up with what I'm experiencing because for us, we begin to judge God all the time on what we're seeing in a particular moment. God, this is what I see. It doesn't look like you're here. And the reason for that oftentimes is we, we view God as a, a glorified uh, a waiter or waitress in our life. We want him to stand, step in, and the evidence that God is there means that everything's going well. It, it's the idea that we're going to get on the skateboard. We're going to have a nice, smooth ride down this hill. We're going to come to the end, and all we're going to do is say, man, that was really fun. A lot of people come to church. They come to God. They come to faith. They come to Christ, hoping that that's the story. But that's not the story. That's not the whole story because God doesn't exist just to make our lives better. He comes to include us and write us into a bigger story. And here's the, why this is important because we have to be a place. We have to be people that we actually express our questions. And the reason for that is that questions always bring understanding. Questions are important because questions are crucial to bring understanding. I think a lot of times in church, we just assume that this is a place where um, we tell you all the answers, we wrap it up in a nice, neat package in a bow, here's your little three few points that you can take with you, go out, have a great week. Go and have a great week. Uh, my, point, my job as your pastor is just to give you all the answers, you take them, you just apply them and do your thing. But here's our approach, just so I'm really clear about this. Sometimes you're gonna come to church, you're gonna come here, and you're not gonna get answers, you're gonna get questions. You're going to come and you're going to hear a message. You're going to read a passage. You're going to hear something that's uh, in the Word of God, and it's going to confront something in you, and it may spark more questions in your life 
than what you entered in with. And here's what we believe here. We believe that's a good thing because questions are the primary way that we learn anything. I mean, think about how you learn to fix your dishwasher. When you, your dishwasher's broken right now, you get on YouTube now. Uh, you don't have to, most of you don't call a repairman. Well, some of you don't. You get on YouTube and you are the repairman. And you're like, hey, I, I want to know how to do this. I'm asking questions why I have a need. And so I'm going to go to the source. I'm going to find out the information. I'm going to search. I'm going to dig. We will do that for a broken dishwasher. My question is, will we do that with life itself, with God? And will we be a place that says we're going to be a place that asks hard questions, embraces hard questions, because that is what life looks like here on the ground. We are talking about a supernatural God moving in supernatural ways. We're talking about real-life difficulties. We've got to bridge the gap, and questions are the bridge that bridges the gap between the supernatural and the natural in our life. And here's what happens is when we ask questions, what it does is it brings understanding. The first thing that it does for us is it helps us to understand that questions are actually about honesty, about honesty. Like if you allow yourself, you would be honest that you have questions in life. I, I hope you would. I hope you wouldn't say, no, I got it figured out. I, I understand. I mean, I've read the Bible. I know what it says. Hopefully you're not at that point. Uh, hopefully you're not at a point where you think you've explored all the depths of God's wisdom and you've come out the other side and your understanding of it has reached such a pinnacle that you don't have anything left to learn. You don't have any more questions. If that's happened, there should be a warning light going off in your life, in your brain, in your spirit to say that is not where God wants you to arrive. We are never finished learning. And if we're never finished learning, if we're never finished transforming, that means that the questions never stop. And that can scare you. It can scare us because we like to be comfortable. We like to have all the answers. We like the package to be nicely neat and wrapped. But what if God is not primarily here to make us feel safe, to make us feel comfortable? What if the God of all creation has revealed himself through the person of Christ? What if he's revealed himself through his word to help us to actually prompt us to ask the real questions? And why is that? Because we have to understand that questions are in of themselves a part of maturing. That there is no maturing apart from asking questions. I mean, those of you that are parents, uh, you know what this is like. I've got four daughters. We've been through this. We're still in it uh, to some degree. Uh, I can remember when uh, our youngest was uh, little and not speaking yet. And now all parents are like this. I just want to know what their voice sounds like. I want to know what they're going to sound like. And then they start talking and you're like, oh my goodness, we just, we, we got a lot of questions, right? There, there's a lot of questions coming out of these little kids. And here's the thing I know about little kids' questions. They are completely honest. Those of you that are teachers, you know this, right? They will ask things. They will embarrass you uh, at the supermarket checkout line when the person in front of you is dressed different than what you're dressed. They'll say things like, hey, dad, why does that guy dress funny, right? And you're like, shh, he can hear you. He's like two feet from you. You know, you're trying to tell him to stop asking questions. But kids are naturally inquisitive. I can remember when I was in high school, I was working with preschoolers. Uh, and in high school, I'm like all teenagers. I had a little acne. Uh, I probably had a, a pimple on my face or something like that. He says, hey, what's that thing on your head? You know? And I'm like, that is inappropriate to ask. <laughs> you know, and embarrassing. But kids are honest. 
But something happens as we mature. We are no longer honest about the questions that we have. And I'll just be honest, we live in a culture that's asking real questions out there. And they're not looking at the church for answers because we've lost the art of actually asking questions. Actually asking questions. To be a place where it's okay to not know something yet, to not yet have arrived at something yet so that we can explore the depths of what God has said, the eternal depths of who he is, the God that it's gonna take us an eternity to get to know. We have to have a mentality of question asking because that's how maturing happens. And at the point that we say we've got it figured out is the point where God removes his spirit from a people. He releases his hand. He stops working because it's much like the people of Israel were. They no longer wanted to look to God for answers. They thought they had the answers in themselves. They could figure it out. And so what that means is that we have to understand where the answers come from. Where do we find the answers? And I'll just be really point blank once again. The place that we find the answers is right here. For this church, for this people, we're not building our, our, a foundation on on tradition alone, we're not building it on methods, we're not building on the shifting sands of culture and the winds of culture. We have to have a stable foundation so that when we ask questions, we say, hey, where do we go? What was Gideon doing? He was talking directly to the prophet of God, the envoy of God that was coming to him. He was speaking directly with God. He was going in search of the answers and he was honest about the why. It doesn't match up. God, where are you? How could you possibly be here if the situation looks like this? And here's the thing about questions is that God will always be faithful to give answers. Watch what happens in 614. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Do I not send you? Go in this might of yours. Some of you, your translation may say, go in the strength that you have. Don't try to get all the answers before you move. Don't try to get it all figured out before you move forward and you're obedient. Because here's the thing that we have to understand is that encounters always lead to assignments. They always lead to assignments. A lot of us, and I've seen this too, and I've been guilty of this myself, is I'm just in search of an encounter with God. And let's be honest about ourselves. We're all pretty much good consumers. Uh, I mean, we could come to church with the best of them and say, hey, you know, I, I was a pretty good encounter with God today. I liked the songs they sang. I, I thought they did the transitions really well. I mean, I kind of like what the pastor said today. He didn't lose me on that point. I kind of got it. Uh, and we evaluate our church experience and say, hey, did we have a good encounter with God today? As if having the encounter itself is the point. But what you see with God is the encounter itself is never the end goal. The encounter always leads to an assignment. Why? Because he is not our servant. He is not our waiter or waitress. He is our Lord. And when he meets with us, he will challenge you to do something that you do not feel capable to do. And when you have an encounter when you hear an assignment from God, he's gonna lead you to the second type of question that you're inevitably gonna face. It's not a why question, it's gonna be a how question. You're gonna be confronted like Gideon was when he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. It doesn't add up. Again, 
Like, I mean, hello, we're talking, I'm in a wine press here. You're calling me a mighty man of valor. You're saying I'm a warrior. You're sending me to fight the people I'm hiding from. You want me to leave this wine press. You want me to go into enemy territory instead of staying right here where I've kind of carved out a little niche. It's kind of a little comfortable place. It's a dysfunctional place, but I'm comfortable in it. I like where I am. Don't mess with me, God. Don't send me out to the front lines. Don't give me an assignment. I'm okay with an encounter. But here's what I would say is if you are encountering with God, every single person in here, encounters are not for people that get paid to do ministry. Encounters are what it means to be created in the image of God. That means that God has an encounter for you, but that encounter is going to lead you to an assignment, and that assignment is going to provoke a question because you are going to look at yourself, and the assignment is going to cause you to take assessment. It's going to cause you to look at yourself and say, I am too weak to do what you're calling me to do. You know how many times I wake up in the morning and feel this? Do you know how many Sundays I step up here and go like, I'm not adequate to be able to tell these people anything. I mean, I've been trying to study. I've been trying to pray, God, but you, you could usually totally use somebody a lot more capable than me. I mean, as a parent, I mean, hello, I don't feel qualified to be a parent. As a husband, I'm, I'm constantly confronted with my own weakness and my own ability to be a good husband. I mean, every area of my life, I, I haven't arrived, but what I have done, I think maturity is this, is that I've come to actually know that weakness, counterintuitively, is a strength. Because here's the thing, the assignment that God gives you is actually going to require your weakness, not your strength. It's going to require you to be weak. Uh, one of my favorite passages in, in Scripture, where's the Apostle Paul that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, planted all this, kind of got the whole thing going, uh, all the churches across the ancient world. Uh, he had a particular thing, and he called it, he, he called it, described it as a thorn in the flesh. It's something that was poking in him, and that hurt, and he didn't like it. it was, he thought it was a threat. So much so that in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he actually prayed and pleaded with God. He said, hey, would you take this thing away from me? And God spoke to him and he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. He didn't say, hey, get that figured out, get straightened up, get everything cleaned up, and then we can talk about what I want you to do. No, in the middle of the process of planting churches, writing letters, going through the hard stuff, beating, stoning, all the other things he was going through, in the middle of that is exactly when God used him. Matter of fact, it got to the point where no longer was he, was he praying it away, he was actually boasting in it. He said there was a transition when I realized that my weakness was actually a strength. Watch how he says it in verse 10 through 12. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's exactly when I'm strong. When I'm at my weakness, when I'm weakest, when I'm at the point when I'm confused, then that's the place where I can completely rely upon the power of God. And here's what I, I would say to us is that the world doesn't need any more of our power. 
It doesn't need any more of our answers. It doesn't need any more of our opinions. It needs the power of God. The world that we live in right now, if, if the power of God does not come in through the people of God that are humbled and willing to be honest about where we are, then what I'm afraid of is that God will continually do what he has done uh, in Judges. He will retract his hand and he will allow our prideful consequences to overtake us. But what does it take for us? It takes for us to say, you know what? I've actually got to embrace this. What did Gideon do? I mean, remember what he said in verse 15? I mean, he asked the question in verse 15. He says, how can I save Israel? How can I do this? And then what did God say? I will be with you. And you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. I mean, imagine hearing that. Some of you know what that's like because God has put an assignment on your life and you're scared to death. And God's saying, you can do it. I'm calling you to do it. I'm giving you an assignment and you're still hiding out in the wine press. But here's what you have to know is that in the middle of that wine press, in the place of your fear, your weakness becomes the foundation of faith. Your weakness is actually the foundation of the faith. That means that if you're at your weakest right now, you're in the perfect position for God to use you. But it's going to take a process. It took a process with Gideon. Matter of fact, he started out with 22,000 men uh, in his army. God said, ah, that's too many. Let's reduce it to 10,000. He's still kind of wrestling with God about this. And God says, you know what? 10,000 is too many too. Um, I'm not going to send you alone. Let's drop it down to 300. And so if you follow the story out over chapter 6 and chapter 7, God reduces his support around him from 22,000 to have his back to 300 and still calls him to go forward. And not only that, but he calls him to go in. Ultimately, you'll read the story. Hopefully, you'll go home and read it yourself. But he goes in, and he doesn't really have any weapons. You know what they ha he gives them? He says, I want you to take some trumpets, and I want you to take some clay pots. You mean no swords? No, I want you to take some trumpets and some clay pots because not only do I not want you to trust that you have a, enough manpower, as it were, an army to do what you think you need to do yourself, I'm going to show you that not only do you need a lot of help, but you actually don't need what you think you need. You don't need the money you think you need. You don't need the firepower you think you need. What you need is me, and I'm about to prove it to you. If you skip forward to verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 19, we'll finish the story out and we'll get out of here. Gideon and the hundred men that were with him, they had divided the 300 into three battalions of 100. They reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard, and they blew their trumpets and they broke the jars that were in their hands. That sounds like a great military tactic. All right? Toot your horn, break your pot. That, that's great, you know? But watch what God does in verse 20. It's comical. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They had no swords. They got a torch and a trumpet and they're saying, it's a sword, you know? Like this is where, this is where they are. And here's the thing is that while they held this in verse 21, this is where they are. This is the most vulnerable position a person can be in. While each man held his position, not advance, held their position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, 
the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. So what happened? They blew the trumpets, they held the torches, and God had the sword. God said, actually, the sword that was going to be used to slay you is going to be the exact thing I'm going to use to defend you. What if the things that we're most afraid of right now, and I'm afraid of some things, okay, so I'm, I'm pointing at myself. What if the very things that we're most afraid of right now are the exact things that God is going to use to advance his calling through our lives? Because here's the thing you need to know about God. His assignment always comes with his provision. It can seem like the day is dark. It can seem like there's no hope, like there's no way out. But here's the beauty of our God. When he comes and he has an encounter, when he gives an assignment, when you're honest about your questions, when you embrace it as your weakness, as the foundation for your faith, he is going to come through with his provision. And the way I like to say it to myself is, his with me is always enough for me. His with me is always enough for me. Now, here's what I want you to know about that. I don't believe that all the time. I don't believe that all the time. But what I do is I have to tell myself that's true. Sometimes I say that when I'm scared to death, when it looks like there's no hope and I don't know the way. I say, Lord, but if you're with me, that's enough for me. If you're with me, that's enough for me. And I am trying to learn that in my life right now. I hope that you're trying to learn it in yours, in your own way, in your own situation. And what I hope is, is that as a church, that we would embrace this as the reality that God not only gives individual assignments, but he gives churches collective assignments. And he calls us to do hard things, and he calls us to do things that ultimately he has to come through and provide for. And so you're not alone on this proving ground where faith and life collide. Every time he calls, he always provides. I don't know what the Lord's calling you to do today, but my prayer is that he would strengthen your faith for the fight. And I wanna pray for you as we finish up. Father, we thank you today. Uh, we thank you that you are with us, that you came for us. God, the ultimate proof that you are with us is your son, Jesus. For those of us that are asking questions in situations of our life right now, Lord, I pray that you would call us back to remember that you ultimately are Emmanuel, God with us. You came and you were tempted as we are, yet without sin. You went through the pain. You went through the confusion that we face. And you came to the other side because we could not do it. Not only did you do that, God, but you left us your spirit so that right now you'd be with us so that we don't have to be physically in your presence, God, but you're spiritually present with us at every single moment. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Every person in here that calls upon the name of, the, of Christ today, God, and has received the spirit of life. You've made them new, and I pray, God, that all of us today that have received that would walk in that. Lord, I pray that you would speak directly to the person today that is, needs to receive an assignment. Lord, our church is full of them people that have received assignments to, uh, to lead small groups, to, to work with kids, to start ministries, to, to uh, influence people that are in, in difficult spots, to serve people out of the limelight, Lord, behind closed doors. They're helping, God. I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people that all receive our assignment and that we step into it. 
I pray, Lord, that you would renew faith and restructure faith around us. And for the person right now that needs to call upon you as the Lord and Savior of their life, I pray right now that you would call them by name and you would give them the confidence and the power to be obedient to the call you're placing on their life to follow through in faithfulness. Give them the courage to share that on that connection card, drop it in a box on the way out today so that we can pray for them and support them. And I pray, God, that together we would follow you. Whatever you're calling us to do, God, lead us into the future. In Jesus' name, amen.